1: This week, the uncheckable proof that's stumping mathematicians.
0: Looking at it, you feel a bit like you might be reading a paper from the future or from outer space.
2: And the latest science from comet 67P.
3: We are very glad that we have a very uh, strange, dark-shaped comet. uh, And it's very odd, and we are very happy. Plus toggling REM sleep on and off. And it's Nobel Prize
1: week, so stay tuned to hear who won what. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 8th, 2015.
2: I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Jackson et al. famously claimed in their 1970 thesis that ABC is as easy as 1, two, 3. Well, Michael Jackson and his colleagues can't have been talking about the infamous ABC conjecture. This fiendish maths problem is the subject of a feature this week written by Davide Castelvecchi. It's one of those ideas that could shake the foundations of things you thought you knew about, like addition and multiplication. It's called the ABC conjecture because it hasn't got a proof yet. Well, actually, that's not quite true. One man has written a proof, but it's so complicated that even mathematicians in his own field are struggling to verify whether he's right. But before we get to that, let's start with the problem. The ABC conjecture asks what happens when we add two whole numbers together. Any whole number can be expressed as a product of prime factors, numbers that can't be divided up any further. So, for example, 5 times 3 equals 15. So say A plus B equals C. If you know the prime factors of A and B, can you say anything about the prime factors of the answer C? In principle, no. But the ABC conjecture suggests there is some link between the prime factors of C and the prime factors of A and B. And, just over three years ago, Shinichi Mochizuki, a mathematician at the University of Kyoto, claimed to have proven the conjecture. Jordan Ellenberg of the University of Wisconsin was one of the first to stumble across this exciting announcement.
0: One night I was online and I got a little notification, oh, you might be interested in this paper posted by Mochizuki, and it was a proof of the ABC conjecture. I was like, wow,
2: yes, I am interested in this. But Jordan's excitement was short-lived. Here's what he posted on his blog.
0: I have not even begun to understand Shin's approach to the conjecture, but it's clear that it involves ideas which are completely outside the mainstream of the subject. Looking at it, you feel a bit like you might be reading a paper from the future or from outer space.
2: And Jordan wasn't alone in his confusion. To date, only four people claim to understand the proof well enough to confirm its claims. Not nearly enough for the community to consider ABC put to bed. Min Yong Kim of the University of Oxford explains why the proof is so impenetrable.
4: Well, the length is definitely a big factor. Yeah, I think the paper itself is somewhat over 400 pages. The style is another important factor. And then on top of that, he puts a lot of philosophy at the beginning, which I think he intends for as, as an aid for people to read the paper. But people aren't so used to that kind of style. <laughs>
2: It doesn't help that Mochizuki doesn't travel, and so he's not presented his proof at any seminars or workshops outside Japan. Our reporter couldn't reach him for this story, although he does email other academics.
4: I wouldn't call him reclusive, because if you go to Kyoto, he's very willing to converse. But he's very uh, uh, conservative with his time. That's one thing he really likes to work.
2: <laughs> but Jordan thinks that more communication wouldn't necessarily help.
4: I think it's
0: actually quite impossible for him to put himself in the mental frame of someone who hasn't been thinking about it. When people ask him, come and give like an hour lecture to explain the strategy, I think his stance is, I really can't explain it more simply than I did in these 500 pages of dense mathematics. I hope he's wrong about that.
2: Jordan, Min Hyung, and many others are waiting, hoping someone can find a way to simplify the theory. And, in December, a group of mathematicians will meet in Oxford to try to finally get to grips with the proof. But the few mathematicians who have understood the 500 pages are struggling to make the proof any simpler. As one mathematician said, everybody who I'm aware of who's come close to this stuff is quite reasonable, but afterwards they become incapable of communicating. But there is some hope for Mochizuki's proof. Even if it doesn't turn out to be true, Jordan says it could be an inspiration to other mathematicians.
0: I really truly do not know whether Mochizuki has written a proof of ABC or not. What I think is very likely, though, is that there really is deep, interesting, important mathematics in there. And my concern is that if people kind of stop feeling like it's a proof of ABC, they just won't pay attention to it at all. And it'll be forgotten, and that I think would be a shame because i don't I don't care that much whether ABC is true. what I care about is like understanding numbers like better than we did before.
2: Min Hyung Kim has organized the Oxford workshop in the hope that the community will finally be able to get their heads around the proof.
4: something may seem very difficult at the beginning, but of course these things are simplified and uh, when Newton developed the calculus, this was regarded as a very difficult thing, but now we teach it to. Students at a level of high school, this is the way ideas get simplified over generations.
2: (laughs) Kim is certainly optimistic that the ideas will eventually make sense.
4: Well, even within the last few years, interest has come and gone. (laughs) At the beginning, people were interested, then they lost interest for a while. Um, My own feeling, of course, is that if the ideas are correct, then eventually they'll get understood.
2: That was Min Yong Kim, and before him, Jordan Ellenberg. To find out more about the proof, check out this week's feature by Nature reporter and maths PhD, Davide Castelvecchi. That's on nature.com forward slash news. Kerry, I actually looked over the proof just to see whether I could verify it or not.
1: All 500 pages?
2: Yeah, well... Two. Two pages.
1: You got as far as two. And and how did you get on?
2: Yeah, I think it's right. Um, I couldn't find any mistakes, so I think we're good.
1: I'd hate to disappoint you, but if you just look at the back of this postage stamp, mm-hmm. I think that'll tell you all you need to know. I've done it. Oh, yeah. So the answer was D. Coming up in the research highlights, deceptive plants and mammals thrive in the Chernobyl region.
2: But before that, though, Kerry, I have to tell you about this amazing dream I had – Einstein is chasing this T-Rex through the Anthropocene and then my teeth fell out.
1: Oh my god, Jurassic relativity? I don't, I can't really beat that. I, my most memorable dream recently uh, was when I invented a new range of orthopaedic shoes.
2: That's, that's really good too, Kerry.
1: Well, I thought so at the time. Anyway, I'm more interested in what's happening in your brain when you're asleep. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. There are two main types of sleep. REM sleep and non-REM sleep. Most of the super exciting dreams we have, especially me, like that one where I won a mass spectrometer and then it wouldn't fit in my house and I had to eBay it, most of those occur during REM sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement, which is what happens during the sleep state. The reasons we experience REM sleep are unknown. Some scientists think it might purge the brain of harmful chemicals or help form memories. But other scientists are starting to understand more about the mechanisms behind it. And Noah Baker's been speaking to Yang Dan from the University of California, Berkeley, whose team has found some neurons in the brain that trigger the REM state.
5: So there are lots of ideas about why we have this mysterious REM sleep, but but do we know how it's caused?
6: So that's really what our study is all about. Basically, what we found is in this ventral part of the medulla, which is part of the brainstem, There is this group of particular types of neurons. If we activate these neurons, we can rapidly and reliably trigger REM sleep.
5: So in terms of your methodology, you were working with mice, and how do you trigger neurons when your mouse is asleep?
6: We use this uh, technique called optogenetics. So what it allows us to do is to activate these neurons or nerve cells uh, using light. The process, like many other studies, involves a lot of uh, trial and error. The postdoctoral researcher in my lab, Franz Weber, so he is really uh, the main person responsible for the finding. And what he did was to sort of uh, poke around uh, in many places in the brainstem. And there's a lot of frustration because most of the time when we try to activate the cells, we wake up the animal uh, rather than uh, trigger either non-REM or REM sleep. And so after uh, quite a bit of search, I would say probably more than a year, he finally found this location and this group of cells that can trigger REM sleep.
5: Have people been able to induce on-command REM sleep in the past?
6: People have certainly used pharmacological stimulation to show that they can increase REM sleep or decrease REM sleep. But one advantage of optogenetic manipulation is that there is a much higher time precision. So if you inject a drug, first of all, it takes some time for the drug to diffuse from your injection pipette to the brain. And then once the drug leaks out, it's very difficult to take it back. So basically what you have to do is to wait for it to diffuse away or for the nerve cells or or other cells in the brain to take it up. So that uh, what you can do is to inject the drug, maybe wait for 10-15 minutes and look at what happens, and maybe wait for another two hours and see whether the effect goes away. But with optogenetics, uh, you can turn on and off uh, the neurons with a precision of a few milliseconds.
5: And you, I'm assuming that the the mouse is already asleep, or can you do it from when it's awake? Can you induce a REM sleep state?
6: Yes, that's a very interesting question. If we turn on a laser when the mouse was in non-REM sleep, then the laser can very quickly trigger the mouse to transition into REM sleep. But if they were awake when we turn on the laser, in fact, that does not trigger REM sleep. And this is interesting because for normal subjects, uh, including normal human subjects. We do not transition from wakefulness to REM sleep directly. We have to go through non-REM sleep. So it's interesting that when we turn on the laser, even though the transition from non-REM sleep to REM sleep is so powerful, it's almost, uh, it's n- more than 90% of the cases, we cannot directly make them go from wakefulness to REM sleep. So I think that there are some very interesting brain mechanisms that are preventing that direct transition.
5: So what does your finding mean going forward? What's it going to allow us to do in sleep research?
6: So I would say that our study is a small but I hope significant step in understanding the brain mechanisms controlling sleep uh, with the hope that eventually such insights will help us to come up with better remedies for sleep-related disorders. So that's the most uh, direct goal. But uh, a slightly longer-term goal is that we think that Obviously, sleep is important, but we don't understand the function of sleep. Uh, there are different hypotheses, um, and eventually, which one turns out to be true uh, remains to be seen. And what we're hoping is that given the remarkable uh, reliability and, and how fast we can turn on and off different types of sleep, we hope that this would also provide a tool for studying the, function, uh, the functions of sleep.
1: That was neuroscientist Yang Dan. Find the paper at nature.com nature.
2: Coming up in the news chat, lots of lovely new Nobel laureates. First though, it's time for the research highlights with Curry Locke.
7: Some good news out of Chernobyl. Researchers tracking animals around the nuclear disaster site have discovered growing populations of large mammals. They found about the same numbers of elk, deer, and wild boar as in nature reserves in Belarus that don't have radiation contamination. The number of wolves was even seven times higher around Chernobyl than in the reserves. The study shows how resilient large animals can be to long-term radiation exposure. The paper is published in the journal Current Biology. Some plants resort to deception to seed the next generation. Plants need help to scatter and plant their seeds. Dung beetles like to roll up animal droppings and bury them in the ground saving them for a tasty snack later on. So why not dupe the dung beetles and make seeds that look and smell like dung? Researchers in South Africa have found a plant species that does exactly that. The researchers watched dung beetles unwittingly roll and bury the plant seeds. The beetles didn't try to nibble on the seeds before burying them, suggesting that the insects don't figure out the trick until after they have planted the seeds. You can find the research in the journal Nature Plants.
1: Reporter Cory Lockfair and to see the confused beetles being tricked by those plants, head to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash nature video channel, to watch them in action. Reporter Lizzie Gibney is never happier than when surrounded by people talking about the Rosetta mission, you know, the one that landed a probe on comet 67P at the end of last year. So off she went recently to the European Planetary Science Congress in Nantes, in France, where the latest results are being
8: dissected and fought over. There's a lot we already know about Comet 67P. It's shaped like a duck, it's made of two separate bodies that are fused together, and it's littered with intriguing organic compounds. But there's still a lot about this comet that's mysterious, and that's great for researcher Diana Laufer, a planetary scientist
3: at Tel Aviv University. We are very glad that we have a very uh, strange, uh, duck-shaped comet, uh, and it's very odd, and we are very happy.
8: One current puzzle is the composition of the comet. We know it's made of ice, but what kind? The type of ice it's made of could tell scientists about the conditions in which the comet formed, and that in turn could tell us about the very early days of our solar system. Luckily, one of the probe's instruments, called Rosina, is helping provide hints by detecting what gases emerge as ice evaporates from 67P. Two teams have been using the same data from Rosina, but they've come up with two completely different explanations for its icy heart. Olivier Moussis has been looking at the ratios of argon, nitrogen and carbon monoxide gases streaming out of the comet, and trying to determine what this tells us about the kind of
2: ice it's made from.
6: If we examine the different ratios between these species, we try
2: to, to compare these ratios with those which could be got from ice experiments to see what kind of ice we have in the comet Olivier
8: and his team found that the high levels of argon match best with icy structures called clathrates. These are like cages made of ice, and they trap gases. If the comet's ice is in this clathrate form, it probably forms somewhere relatively hot, somewhere like the pre-solar nebula, the big disk of stuff that gave rise to the rest of our solar
2: system. It means that the main reservoir of the cometary material was not the interstellar medium, which is located much beyond, but was primarily the Protosolar Nebula, in which all the planets were formed.
8: This would make the comet a sister of the planets and a child of the relatively hot middle of our developing solar system, rather than a fragment brought in from the colder outer reaches of the disk. But not everyone agrees. Diana Laufer, who we heard from at the beginning, has been trying to recreate the comet's icy
3: profile in lab experiments on Earth to try to deduce how it might have formed. We can calculate uh, all kinds of uh, properties of the ice, and they fit the direct observation. It's a miracle that uh, a layer of few centimetres behave like a huge comet. The team
8: subjected the little model comet to different temperatures to see at what point their mixture would form into ice. The only way to trap the gases Racina saw was to form the ice at minus 150 degrees Celsius. Not only that, as they increased the temperature, they saw jets of gas that are characteristic of the comet 67P. And as their model shows, ice formed at this temperature is not in neat clathrates, but in a disordered molecular jumble, what Diana refers to as amorphous
3: ice. At this temperature, the water is not uh, crystalline. It is called amorphous form, and the density is very low. And this is uh, the form that we believe that uh, is uh, suited for trapping gases in our comet. If the temperature is higher, we cannot observe these gases at all. They cannot be trapped in the ice. That would suggest that the hot middle hypothesis can't work. Instead, Diana and
8: her colleagues think the comet formed from material in the outside of the baby solar system... Then the
3: comet moved to its current orbit, between Earth and Jupiter. It should be at very low temperature, at the edge of the solar system. Uh, and then the comets migrate to the inner solar system. This colder material
8: would have been present even before the solar system began to form. Whereas in Olivier's theory, the comet ice freezes only once the solar system formation is already underway. If Olivier is right, the comet can tell us about our solar system. But if Diana is right, then the comet's ice grains take us back even further in time. They're the ingredients for any solar system. 67P, therefore, could teach us about worlds beyond our own.
2: So who's right? For the moment, what we have in the literature is that we, we see no match of the Argon data. So far, with our current knowledge, taking into account the literature, the is the best match so far.
8: To sort out who's right the Tel Aviv team will make new measurements to study how Argon is released in Diana's mini-comet, which is built from amorphous ice. They'll see if they can match these findings to the comet measurements they've already made. And despite the scientific disagreements, this kind of friendly argument is exactly how discovery should work, says Katrin Altweg, who leads the Racina team.
3: I think it wouldn't be good if we had all the same uh, view, because then it's very one-sided. We have to discuss and then come to a conclusion. That's, I think that's really how science should work and has to work. And, and that leads to very nice discussions during our team meetings, <laughs> sometimes even loud discussions. But that's OK. That's how science works.
8: They also have an amicable way of ending any arguments. Well, we have good discussions and then we have a drink together. <laughs> Just one last question then. What type of ice would you like in that drink? For The Nature Podcast, I'm Lizzie Gibney. Lizzie was talking to members of the Rossina Instrument
1: Team, Olivier Moussis and Katrin Altweg, and Diana Laufer from Tel Aviv University.
2: Time now for our weekly news chat, and what story could we possibly be talking about other than the Nobels? Richard Van Norden has been thinking about nothing else for the last week or so. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. So let's start with the latest Nobel Prize which
9: has been announced, which is chemistry. This one has just been announced as I'm talking to you. It's been awarded for work on DNA repair. So DNA is not a stable molecule, but it decays over time. Obviously, it holds all the genetic information that makes up our cells and makes life exist. So Thomas Lindahl, who's one of the Nobelists this year, realised there's got to be a repair mechanism that patches up the DNA when it's damaged and fights back against this relentless uh, entropy process. And in fact, many, many people have worked on about at least 10 different mechanisms by which damaged DNA is patched up. Uh, And there's been some dispute already about whether these three scientists who won, Thomas Lindahl, Paul Modric and Aziz Sanchar, should have won the prize. But most people think they are, you know, the founders of the field.
2: So what's the wider significance of understanding how our DNA decays or rather doesn't thanks to these repair techniques?
9: Well, there's actually immediate significance to human health. If your DNA repair system has a fault, you're at far higher risk for cancers because mutations can go uncorrected. And cancer cells themselves survive damage by employing enzymes to patch up their own DNA. So there's now interest in medical therapies that target tumour cells repair pathways. Uh, And and work on DNA repairs had impacts in other fields as well. For example, in the 1980s and 90s, Researchers were starting to try and extract ancient DNA, millions of years old, and it was hard to work out, is this modern contamination or really ancient DNA? It turned out that the patterns of DNA damage that Lindahl first characterised are now used as a kind of stamp of authenticity to work out whether it's truly ancient DNA. And of course, DNA genome editing that we're um, also excited about this year, CRISPR-Cas9, ultimately has its roots in looking at the ways that cells repair damaged DNA.
2: So moving on to the physics Nobel, this went to research on neutrinos.
9: Yeah, neutrinos are the second most abundant particle in the universe, just behind photons. But they're still extremely mysterious because they very rarely interact with anything at all. There are trillions of them going through our body each year and we never notice them. And even if one of them were to to hit us, we wouldn't notice it. You're making me struggle to care about neutrinos right now. Well, although I say that, they're so abundant that they actually make up a huge amount of mass of the universe. What the Nobel Prize winners did was they worked out a kind of answer to a bit of a puzzle. And the puzzle was that when we first worked out how to detect neutrinos coming from the sun, uh, which we did with these underground mines that very occasionally recorded an impact there weren't as many neutrinos as we thought there ought to be. And the answer to the puzzle is that neutrinos oscillate between different types or or flavours. And that, in turn, implies that neutrinos are not like photons. They're not massless like light. They do have a tiny amount of mass. So the winners, Takaki Kajita and Arthur MacDonald, worked out exactly that neutrinos were indeed starting out as one flavour and then appearing as another.
2: There's been a lot of talk lately about what needs to be done to improve the standard model to go beyond it. Could research like this help point the way of how to improve upon our best current theory in theoretical physics?
9: Yeah, it's a very active field of research. And um, there are four detectors being built right now in China, India, the US and Japan, um, all trying to untangle more about the relationships between these flavours of neutrinos. And the implications are quite deep. For example, there's a great puzzle about why there's so little antimatter around us in the universe today, when matter and antimatter ought to have been produced in equal quantities at the Big Bang. One theory is that the antineutrino oscillates between its flavours in a different way than does the neutrino. And that subtle difference could help to explain some of the puzzle of why matter won out over antimatter. So that's one of the things that people are now investigating.
2: Okay, so finally, on to the first Nobel Prize, which was announced, also the first science Nobel Prize to be announced, which was the prize for
9: medicine. Yeah, if you want to tot up the Nobel Prize with the most immediate and obvious impact, it would be this one. The prize went to three researchers who developed drugs against parasites, which have probably saved millions of lives. One researcher, interestingly, is China's first Nobelist, uh, Yu Yu Tu, or Tu Yu Yu, She led a a project, quite a secret government project at the time, in the 1960s, to try and find new treatments against malaria. And she rather famously found this recipe in an ancient uh, traditional Chinese medicine script, um, but worked out the active compound and how to make it and produced artemisinin, which is today's frontline therapy against malaria. She's not actually been recognised much in China. There's been some controversy in China about whether she deserves all the plaudits that have come her way. But I think most people outside of China feel that she very much does. Um, And perhaps this uh, recognition with the Nobel will lead to her being better fated in China than she has been so far. The other winners, Satoshi Omura and William Campbell, they developed treatments against parasitic roundworms, which cause infections such as river blindness. They actually discovered a class of compounds called avermectins, which Amura actually first isolated from bacteria on a golf course in Japan. And a lot of drug discovery later, out came ivermectin, one of these avermectin compounds, uh, which is a best-selling drug, but then which Merck um, then agreed to give away, perhaps because they weren't getting much money from it. And millions of treatments of this drug uh, have now been given away under a donation program.
2: There's been a lot of talk about the gender imbalance within the Nobels and I suppose this year's no exception really.
9: Yeah, looking at the prizes this year it's it's one woman and seven men and and in fact only 48 women counting this year have actually won a Nobel whereas far more than 800 men have won it. So, I mean, again, we're, we're seeing that imbalance. And we also see this year another classic question that comes up with the Nobels, which is how on earth do you award a single prize when many teams or many researchers have worked on an area? In fact, all three have that problem. The, the only reason these anti-parasite drugs were such a success is because countless hundreds of people worked on getting these drugs in, in donation programs, getting them out on the ground, getting their prices sorted out. So the drug discovery is is just the first start and, and even that was a, a large team. Um, the neutrinos, well, hundreds of physicists worked on, on these detectors in these mines. It wasn't wasn't just the leaders. Um, and, uh, and as for the DNA repair, I mean, I've already said that there are many different mechanisms of repair and many people worked on them. And so we are butting up once again Uh, the limited number of people, three people that under the terms of Alfred Nobel's will can be recognised with any one prize.
2: Thanks, Richard. Plenty more detail on the Nobel Prize winners, of course, at nature.com forward slash news.
1: That's all from the Nature Podcast this week. We love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. So drop us a line at podcast at or tweet at us at Nature Podcast on Twitter. Or if you just want to talk to Adam, it's at ClimateAdam.
2: Or at Mini Kerry if you want any more details on the most boring dreams of the century. I'm Adam Levy.
1: And I'm Kerry Smith.
5: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
8: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.